uh, started the, uh, the material on infectious diseases last time. Uh, we didn't get through a lot. Uh, but it led us up to this, this point, and that is normal microbiota. Okay, and these are organisms we obviously have some kind of symbiotic relationship with, uh, since they are normal residents. Uh, you don't get rid of them as a rule. The only time they ever give you a problem is uh, when something upsets the balance of different microorganisms and one of them becomes predominant when it wasn't before. And this can then lead to some pathogenic issues. Uh, uh, C. difficile is like that. Clostridium difficile is always there, but, but only under certain circumstances because it's become a problem. So, so these are part, uh, mostly the organisms you've had most of your life. Uh, they're predominantly commensals, which means that they benefit and you aren't bothered one way or the other, but some are mutualistic, which means that you benefit. Certainly, uh, there are organisms in the uh, colon which provide uh, vitamin K, which are primary source of vitamin K. Uh, so there are, you know, they do provide some, uh, some benefits as well. And then they also protect against the establishment of pathogens by having a lot of organisms. Yes? This is sick. Did we just finish 5B? No. This is this one's gotten a lot much longer either. The basic idea here is that uh, some of the uh, drugs that we use do have some toxic side effects. Uh, one of the videos we had talked about that. Um, a lot of times we don't really know why exactly. Uh, kidneys and livers seem to be the most common. Uh, and I guess that's probably because those are the organs that are getting rid of the, uh, the drug. And so uh, this becomes a consideration when you're prescribing uh, what is the general health of the individual. Uh, if they have, uh, have already have some kidney issues and they're taking drugs from what you would not give. You're also going to look at the pregnancy. If a woman is pregnant, there are certainly some drugs you would not use as they will cross the placenta. may cause difficulties. Uh, uh, I have a, a picture here in the room about that. And, and all of this leads to something called a therapeutic index. Um, and this is the ratio of the dose of a drug that you can tolerate, in other words, you're not going to have some adverse reaction to, to the effective dose. 
which may be something very different. The effective dose might actually be larger than the, the, uh, the dose that you'd be tolerating in a given situation. So the therapeutic index is a ratio of those two things. Okay, here are some of the side effects. Uh, tetracycline can uh, leave uh, marks on the teeth, can leave permanent marks. Uh, discoloration, uh, this is a discoloration here from uh, metronidazole. Uh, kind of black, fuzzy tongue. Uh, these are the side effects to those particular antimicrobial agents. Don't really know entirely why you have those effects. Well, tetracycline is a very common drug. Uh, it's given a lot. But normally, uh, the time period over which you take it is uh, not a long time period. The, the kind of condition you see here would be with if it was. Yes? Is this uh, the Mr. K uh, Yes, that's an antifungal. Yeah, and that, I don't know why it does that, but it's an antifungal. Yes. And antifungal drugs always have more side effects. Closeness of the uh, cell structure of the Well, they're both eukaryotes, and that makes it okay, Occasionally, people are allergic to drugs. Um, unfortunately, you don't get to know that until you have your first allergic reaction, because otherwise, you have no idea that you're allergic to a drug. And you may take a drug for many years never have, I mean, not continuously, but uh, penicillin is famous for that. People have had penicillin tolerated just fine. They get an injection of penicillin, and, and wham, they've got a, a, a strong allergic reaction, sometimes even an anaphylactic shock. Uh, they are uh, obviously life-threatening. They're not overly common. Uh, my my ex-wife was uh, allergic to both uh, penicillin and uh, sulfur drugs. Penicillin, I think, is we see that one because it's it's common. It's used a lot. It's kind of a low-level antibiotic that's used. If penicillin works, then that's great because it has really very few side effects. Um, so it's, it's commonly used. But so it, it has a lot of use. And so if there are uh, allergic reactions, then you're going to see them from that. Uh, you what's usually happening is you are you tolerate the drug and you gradually build. A response to it, uh, and then you reach some threshold and you get an allergic reaction. It's much like uh, bee stings can be like that, uh, poison ivy is like that. Uh, some people tolerate and grab onto poison ivy and have no effect whatsoever. But if you do that often enough, you're going to probably going to start having a response. Uh, and, and so that, that can change. The other side effect is disruption of your normal microbiota. Okay? Uh, this can actually result in a secondary infection from a, a normal resident. But now it can grow much better than it could before because you've killed off a lot of the other competing microbes by, by use of, of the antibiotic. Um, and this is referred to as, so when these normal flora overgrow, this is referred to as a super infection. And that's what uh, uh, difficile is. 
That's basically what's usually happening in that case. It's an overgrowth. Usually the people are on medications. It's common in, in nursing homes and hospitals where people are already on medications uh, and it disrupts the normal flora of the intestinal tract and you see the ischial becomes uh, uh, kind of takes over, grows and rapidly. shock is when you have, and this is also part of the immune system, when you have essentially an inflammatory response that's system-wide. And one of the things that will happen with that is you're going to have uh, dilation of blood vessels, of ar arterioles and arteries, and if it's in a localized area, it's no big deal, it happens all the time, but if it's system-wide, what you'll end up with is a drastic drop in blood pressure. Uh, and when the blood pressure drops, then blood doesn't get back to the heart the way it should, your heart can't pump blood out, and this can be life-threatening. You can also get, because of the, uh, another part of the inflammatory response is uh, the, the blood vessels become more permeable and liquid, more fluid leaks out of them, which causes swelling. And the swelling in, in this area up in here can, can compress the, uh, the uh, respiratory passage. And obviously, if you can't breathe, you've got a problem. Fortunately, that is very easily treated but it has to be treated, obviously, immediately. Um, and so people who know they're allergic uh, will carry uh, EpiPens, which is epinephrine. Epinephrine reverses all of that. And uh, so those people carry them with, uh, pretty much all the time because they know that they're allergic. They're going to do the same thing. They're going to use epinephrine. Epinephrine is your quickest. Uh, it reverses the effects. Now, shock in general, and in, in anatomy, you should have talked about all the different kinds of shock. Uh, you know, there was, uh, there would be hemorrhage, shock due to hemorrhaging, shock due to something like this, an allergic reaction. Anything that drops your blood pressure way down will, will lead to shock. Uh, and, and that's why shock is so dangerous. You, you, you know, a person doesn't have to be hemorrhaging to go to shock. Shock is always potentially. Now, there are levels of shock. There are some levels of shock that your body will, will take care of by itself. If you go past that threshold and the body can no longer do that, then outside efforts are, are required. Uh, in some cases, it could be uh, uh, adding uh, fluids to the, the uh, circulatory system to build the body back up. Uh, uh, epinephrine uh, causes the to constrict, which therefore brings the pressure back up so that blood's getting back to the heart and then can pump back out again. So there's, uh, uh, epinephrine is one of the most common. And EpiPens are really easy to use. You just jab it in your thigh. Like, just take the thing off, whack right in the thigh. Yeah. Hey, you're going to die? What if you don't do it? It's not that hard to do. I don't imagine. Uh, we talked about resistance. Um, we had a little bit of that, I think, on one of your uh, uh, assignments, uh, the one on bacteria genetics. Uh, resistance 
said quickly. Resistance does not occur, well, for, there are two reasons why it does not occur. One, your body does not become resistant to the antibody. That has nothing to do with it, okay? But I see that as an answer a lot. Uh, your body is not, your body has nothing to do with resistance. It's the bacteria that are resistant, okay? Now, bacteria cannot just make themselves resistant. They can't say, oh, there's a drug there, I'm gonna change and become resistant. It's not an option. They have to already have the genetic makeup to be resistant. Now, why would a bacterium be resistant? Well, there are a lot of organisms out there, fungi and bacteria, that secrete antibiotics into the environment. And bacteria, some bacteria will have developed, will have gotten a gene that makes them resistant to a particular antibiotic. Now, when you, if, if one of those, if have a population of bacteria you're trying to get rid of in the body, and some of them are resistant and most of them are not, all the ones that are not will die. But the ones that are resistant will not, and they will continue to reproduce. And now you get a larger and larger pool of resistant bacteria. Okay. Uh, but the resistance has to already be there. It's not already there. They're not going to just say, oh, okay, here's let me grab these genes and put it in here, and I'm going to be resistant. That, that's not what happens. Now, generally they come about by mutation. I mean, mutations happen, particularly when you're haploid. Mutations can happen more easily um, because all bacteria are haploid. Um, the chances of a random mutation making you resistant to an antibiotic are pretty slim. But you know, over time, uh, enough different organisms are have get mutations to make this thing happen. The other way is by uh, getting plasmids by one of the three ways that we'd already talked about, uh, transformation, transduction, or, or uh, 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 conjugation. So that's probably the most common, but of course that means somebody else was already resistant. They call them R plasmids because they're plasmids that carry resistance. Or a gene, or in some cases they may carry gene three. And then you get So this is just an illustration. Uh, here's your population here. Most of these are drug sensitive. A couple of them are not. You expose them to the drug. Most of them are killed. Uh, this one survived. These survived. And now these guys are resistant. And so even if you uh, added more of the, uh, the uh, drug, uh, they're going to continue to grow. And the same thing happens inside of you. Resistance has probably been around for before we knew antibiotics existed. There probably were always some bacteria out there resistant. But couldn't that happen in a number of healthcare providers? Well, a lot of the time you don't have a resistant population. So it's not that common? It's becoming more common. It's just the, the roll of the dice, what you got. Uh, you are more likely to pick up a resistant organism when you're in the hospital than you are out in the public because lots of antibiotics are being used in the hospital and selected for resistance. Uh, this is one of the arguments for not 
of using antibiotics for agricultural purposes. It's all it does is encourage resistance to go through that machine. Not that it, not because it's in your food. Okay, that's another mistaken idea. It's not because it's not like the you know they use it in, in chickens, for instance. It's not like the chicken that you're eating has a lot of antibiotics in it. That would be metabolized pretty quickly. Uh, but the organisms there may become resistant, and then they spread to other locations. So um, antibiotic-free uh, foods are really beneficial because it means we're not spreading all the antibiotics around. You're eating the antibiotic. What is an antibiotic? The most protein. What's going to happen to the protein in your digestive system? Broken down with all the other proteins. Okay, this is just some of the ways that you you. I know you did this in the uh, the lab uh, that they uh, the mechanisms. They produce an enzyme that destroys the drug. They prevent the entry of the drug. They target the drug so it can't bind well. Uh, they alter their own metabolism so that the drug doesn't have any effect anymore. Uh, they can uh, take the drug and simply push it back out of the cell as fast as it comes in. Uh, and bacteria that are in biofilms definitely are, are resistant because of the, all of the other extra outside, the uh, material that's been secreted by the cells outside. And this, uh, like tuberculosis, produces this protein, which binds to this enzyme, and that prevents the fluoroquinolone drugs from binding, so that they're not effective on tuberculosis. Uh, Fluoroquinolones are fairly common. They're often used in agriculture. Some of the most common. Okay, and we talked about this, I think, before. This is... Uh, uh, penicillin, this is referred to as the lactam ring right here, it's the square area. And what the enzyme does that, uh, that those are resistant to penicillin is it breaks this bond right here and it's no longer in a ring shape and now it has, it's ineffective against it. Now multiple resistant obviously becomes a problem. Constant use of the drug uh, eliminates the sensitive cells if there are talk about multi-drug resistance, usually they're talking about uh, only three that they're resistant to, these three different antibodies. And there are some that seem to be resistant to everything as well. Okay, so um, how do we retard resistance? Well, dosage makes a difference. It may be that if you gave somebody a low dosage, it kills most of the, the resistant ones, but there'd be a couple that, that were resistant at that dose. You gave them a higher dose, it may kill most. And so you, that's one, one option. Uh, you want to make sure that the concentration is in the patient for a sufficient time. So that's why they tell you, you get an antibiotic, take them until they're all gone so that you have the drug in your system long enough for it to don't finish it, then there might be a few that you didn't quite die, and now they are a drug. And so you 
why they need them. The other thing they can do is they use them in combinations. Uh, that's not uncommon. I think then again in the video we had the nightmare uh, period, uh, they talked about doing that, using combinations of different antibiotics. And then what they do is they'll rotate them. They'll use one combination and they'll change them to another combination and change them to another combination. And that's one of their ways of trying to get at these also have sometimes two drugs will interact with each other. Um, and so this has amoxicillin here with this plasmulanic acid to, added to it. This is a synthetic drug here. And you'll notice that this is the area that this by itself will clear and also over here. But the two of them together will, are much more effective and will clear a much larger area. And so sometimes drugs together. It's another reason for using multiple drugs. Okay, and this is the standard stuff that you did in your last, in that lab. You know, only use them when you have to. We need new variations, um, so they're, they're looking. Um, we haven't had much new stuff come out. And that was What do you have to be able to do in order to be infectious? Okay. I have a little bit of introductory stuff, and we'll get into that, that part of it. Okay, so we've talked about, you mentioned symbiotic relationships before uh, in, in uh, the other uh, lecture. Uh, and that simply means organisms that have a relationship with each other. There are more than, there is more than one kind of symbiotic relationship. But in terms of, of uh, microbes, we're generally looking at mutualistic. Uh, they each benefit by their being there with two organisms. Commensalistic, which means one benefits and the other one could care less. It's no effect. And occasionally we get uh, pathogens we probably could consider to be parasites because they harm the host. They, of course, benefit. All right, so those are the three basic types of symbiotic relationships. You should have had that in general, general biology class. But they are different from each other. Okay, and so mutualism, that's the, the these uh, termites here are totally unable to digest cellulose. Uh, animals do not make enzymes that digest cellulose. But yet, they eat wood and they get nutrition from but they don't do the breaking down of the nutrition. They contain in their guts uh, a, 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 a protozoan, a protein, flagellated protozoan, that is able to break down the cellulose, and then they use that breakdown product for their nutrition. If you were to be able to get rid of their internal uh, uh, protease, they would starve to death. That's just one example. Okay. Um, of course, we talked about this in lab. Resident versus transient uh, organisms. Um, normal ones uh, kind of colonize all the time. They don't cause a problem. Uh, they uh, call them normal flora or indigenous or 
know, our old residents, those are all named. Now, transients are ones that you just pick up from the environment and are pretty easily removed by washing. We do that well, in this country. We wash what people in other countries would say on the mainland several times a day. Uh, but that's just our culture. Obsessed with cleanliness. And that's just an example of some. This looks like the inside of So residents, part of the normal microbiota, generally stay there the whole your whole life. Once you, you pick them up, most are commensals. Some of them are uh, mutualistic. And this is just you don't need to memorize these, but it's just giving you a, a, a little bit of an idea of what kind of resident organisms are in different parts of the body. So we're looking at the respiratory tract. Um, lactobacilli are there. They're kind of all. Haemophilus, Haemophilus influenza is an organism that causes pneumonia. Uh, Staphylococci, Streptococci are kind of normal residents. Uh, Candida, which is a, a fungus, a yeast type fungus, fairly normal resident of the respiratory tract. And normally none of these are problems. Now, of course, uh, the uh, where you will find different ones will depend on the conditions. As it says over here, your nose is obviously Track, but find different organisms there that you can address. Uh, as you go down the trachea, you get fewer and fewer organisms, and usually by the time you get down to the lungs themselves, they are <coughs> supposed to be sterile. There usually are no organisms in the lungs. Uh, if there are, they're normally going to be uh, capsules. Digestive tract, boy, there's, there's a crowd in there. Uh, the, uh, I, I've seen uh, numbers of uh, up to 200 different species found in your mouth, not necessarily all at the same time, but uh, that's a, a lot of different bacteria. Uh, but you've got to figure them out to be a place where you would have a lot of them. Uh, as you go into the upper digestive tract, uh, you will find uh, Neisseria, Lactobacilli, Haemophilus again, Bacteroides, Carinobacterium, uh, Staphylococci, Treponema, okay, Entamoebas, uh, Protozoan. So these are generally the kinds of things you find in the upper levels. As you get into the lower digestive tract, you're going to get more and more anaerobic. And you'll find most of these are anaerobics. Here's where E. coli is hanging out, Clostridiums, uh, Shigella, that's a problem child, Candida again. Okay. Uh, these are going to be anaerobics. Or facultative anaerobics. They have to be able to survive without oxygen. Urinary tract. Notice a lot of the same names again. Uh, Clostridium, Lactobacilli, Staphylococci, Streptococci, Candida. Kind of the normal, run of normal stuff. Uh, normally in the female reproductive tract, Lactobacilli predominate. Uh, and they maintain the acid environment that inhibits Candida from getting discovered. Male tract is again many of the same critters. Generally speaking, Unless you obviously had a bladder infection, then that wouldn't be the case. But normally, uh, urine is sterile. It doesn't pick up any microbes, so it moves down through the urethra. And basically, it's relatively sterile as it comes out. So it's just whatever microbes it picked up 
However, it's also an excellent culture. Just generally on the skin, here are some of the organisms. Lambobacterium, uh, Procyanobacterium, these are uh, the ones that uh, uh, feed on the uh, uh, residue from sweat, creates odors. Uh, Staphylococci, Candida again. Those Candida's kind of all over the place. So lots of, lots of, and again, I'm not expecting you to memorize any So, transient organisms, normally only found for a short time. Um, they're found in all the same places as residents. I mean, that, that, that's your standard locations for, for transients as well. But they don't live, they don't, they don't can't live in you. They uh, are, they're not really adapted to living in us. They'll be there for a short time. And you're gonna get rid of them. You're gonna have to compete with the other normal residents. It's one of the advantages <coughs> they have in the normal residents is they make it hard for new things to compete and get established. Uh, and then, of course, you have your immune system, which is going to you know, remove them because they're not used to having them. Uh, when do you get them? Well, uh, you get them while you're being born. Okay, You are pretty much sterile inside the amniotic sac. Uh, once that sac breaks, all bets are off. Uh, and so then usually you're going to be, within the first few months, you're going to have almost all the different resident organisms. I mean, after all, you know, what's the first thing that, that parents do as a newborn other than hold it and hug it and they touch it and, you know, and they kiss it and, you know, I mean, you know, all you're doing is passing. And then, of course, then they're nursing because you know, you're going to probably get some more bacteria that way. Um, you know, they've got, you know, they're going to be colonized at that point. No way. To, and it's a, it's a benefit, really. Because it's what gets the immune system started. Uh, it, newborns' immune systems are very poor. Uh, it's not until they're several months old that they have not much of an immune response. They rely on what they get from mom pretty much to protect them. So first months, you get most of your residents. Now, pathogens. Uh, one is what we call opportunistic pathogens. Now, these may be normal residents that under certain circumstances can become pathogenic, like C. difficile, okay? Normally it's a resident, but it can become a pathogen. Um, it can be because the other organisms that are normally around it are decreased in numbers due to drugs. It may be that it somehow gets moved to a different part of the body where it doesn't normally, isn't normally found. Uh, there's a number of things that can do that. Uh, but we're looking here at opportunistic, our Organisms that normally are not a problem, but you give them a chance, they are capable of becoming pathogenic. Now, majority of pathogens cannot survive for very long outside of their host. This is a problem for pathogens. Transfer from one host to another is not, not an easy process. Uh, most of them don't, never make it. Okay, uh, Most of them die out there. Okay? But uh, there's enough of them that some will, will pass on. Now, for that to occur, there has to be a reservoir somewhere where these organisms are maintained in order to spread from there. And there are three basic types. There's animal reservoir. Uh, any organism, uh, the, the animals that carry these are referred, these are referred to as the zoonoses. That's the type zoo meaning animal. 
uh, they spread from animal hosts to humans. And sometimes these are a normal uh, disease process. Other times the human is a dead end, but that may be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, this is how you normally acquire them, direct contact uh, by eating them, or transfer by, I love that term, blood-sucking arthropods. Okay? Uh, basically, ticks, mosquitoes, those, those guys. Uh, they can transfer. Uh, again, it says, we're usually a dead-end host. We're not, they're not going anywhere from us, but they still can cause So that's, oh, those are organisms that come from an animal host. Uh, go back here. Uh, we can have human carriers. Uh, well, this is just a list of some of the common ones. Zoonoses, uh, helminths, protozoans, fungal, bacteria, viral. And these are just some of the more common ones. Then we have, occasionally we have human carriers. They have no symptoms. If they have the, 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 the pathogen, but for whatever reason, their body and the pathogen have kind of a truce going on, but they can still spread that pathogen to other individuals. So they, they become carriers. So some may eventually get the illness, but some never do. Uh, some of the, um, uh, one of the uh, ones, uh, typhoid, uh, is one of the diseases that can easily do this. It, it uh, gets into the gallbladder, and it may stay in the gallbladder for years, and somebody does not actually get ill, but since it's in their gallbladder, those, if there isn't good sanitation, they can pass it on to other individuals. That would be a human carrier. Okay. Carrier, the key point is that the carrier is not ill. The carrier simply is transporting the critters. And then there's all kinds of non-living reservoirs. Soil, water, food, you know, I mean, they're all over the place out there. Uh, they can be due to contamination, or they may just live there. There are a lot of soil bacteria. Okay, a teaspoon of, uh, of just normal garden soil contains hundreds of thousands of different bacteria. And there's a lot of them. Some of them are pathogens. All the Clostridia are soil bacteria. Anthrax is a soil bacteria. I mean, they're just out there. They live in the, you know, they, they survive in the soil. All right, a couple of terms here. Difference between contamination and infection. Contamination simply means that the microbes are on you, or in you, as the case may be. We don't call it an infection until it becomes established and has evaded all of your normal defenses, then we would call it an infection. So you, we probably all have, are contaminated on a fairly regular basis with some of these things, but they never become established, okay? So, so we would never call them an actual infection. Now, all right, so if you're going to be a, a successful pathogen, there's a number of things you have to be able to do. Okay, the first thing is, got to get inside the body somehow. If you don't get in, you're not going to be successful. And we refer to the places that organisms get in as portals of entry. Three basic areas. They can come in through the skin. Now normally, skin is, they're not going to come through the skin 
unless you have cuts, scrapes, which we all get on, on occasion, you know, and that becomes a portal of entry because your normal skin is not there to block it. Mucous membranes is another portal of entry. Okay, uh, mucous membranes are found at every opening in the body. We're not, we don't have the option of not having openings. Stuff's got to get in and stuff's got to get out. That's the way it is if you're a living thing. Mucous membranes are found at each one of those portals, but they then become possible portals of entry. Okay. And then, of course, for the infant, the placenta. There are certain uh, microbes which will cross the placenta to, to the fetus and can cause significant issues. Uh, obviously, one that you're all hearing about right now is the Zika virus. Very obviously crossing the placenta causes problems. So your first uh, that issue then, if you are going to be a successful micropathogen, is you have to get into the body. You've got to get through a portal of entry. Okay, that's number one. If you can't do that, then nothing else matters. And these are just some examples again here. These show you all the even insect bites, that's another possible. How many people, when they get a, I don't know, I've noticed some people who, when they get an insect bite, mosquito bite, they just scratch at it, scratch at it until it actually bleeds. Well, you've created a portal of entry. The insect bite itself was a portal of entry for whatever the insect was carrying. So the skin, uh, we rarely get stuff through the skin because the outer layer of cell is a really good barrier. We'll talk about that more. Uh, openings, cuts. There are a few that can actually burrow through the outer layers. There are not many. There are a few that can actually burrow through the, through the skin. Mucous uh, membranes, warm. Oh, they're they're a, a, a haven for microbes because it's warm, it's moist, dark. Wonderful environment for pathogens. However, uh, generally, Then they have to survive the acid bath in the stomach. And many organisms cannot do that. And of course, the placenta. So, portals of entry. And these are a list of some that can cross the placenta and then cause and what kinds of effects they have on the fetus. Alright, now once you're in through a portal of entry, you're going to have to hang on. You're going to have to adhere to the body cells. Otherwise, you're just going to get washed out. If you're in the digestive tract, everything's moving, and you're going to find yourself out. If you're in the trachea, you're constantly moving mucus up. You're going to find yourself out. Uh, if you get a little bit in your nose, a lot of you blow your nose, things come out. Okay, You get rid of them. They need to be able to adhere to cells, or they're going to find themselves gone. Okay, So... Uh, that attachment usually requires a specialized attachment location. Different microbes have different specialized three-dimensional sites that they will attach to. Okay? These may uh, require specialized structures and proteins that are on the, the pathogen. For instance, uh, the flu virus has a, uh, carries on its outer capsule a protein whose sole function is to bind to 
receptor on our side so that they can get to the other side. If they can't do that, then they can't be So they have to be able to, to attach themselves, and then they can grow and begin to establish a, a, a colony. At this point, we would consider that still a contamination, not an infection yet. Okay, so number one, portal of entry. Number two, have to is adhesion. Got to adhere to the cells inside the body. And this is an example here. Here's a microbe here uh, attaching to a, a host cell membrane to a protein. Uh, this is an example here of E. coli, and, and these are the cells of the, uh, uh, the intestine. And e. coli can attach, okay. have to attach. Okay. Absolutely essential to attach. So if you could block its attachment point, that would be one way you could stop it from being infective, and that's what some of the antiviral drugs attempt to do. They attempt to block the attachment point that, that the virus would be using. Um, if you can alter the, the microbe in some way so it cannot make its normal attachment proteins, certainly that would be a good thing. Uh, if you have a biofilm form, pathogens will actually attach to each other. Okay, so, but adhesion is, is extremely important. This is a look at plaque, dental plaque. You can see that these are obviously bacteria. There are more of them. This is all of that non-living matrix that they secrete around them. A lot of calcium in here, kept at bay for a few days. Uh, and uh, this fibril, the fibrils and some of these are actually cheese and not bad cheese. Uh, that's a biofilm. Alright, now an infection then is the next step. Infection and then disease. Infection is when the, the host, well, when the pathogen begins to successfully grow in the host. And we don't call it a disease until it alters the normal metabolism of the host in some way. Okay. So when we talk about infectious diseases, these are microbes that when they get into a, a host, they are in some way going to alter the normal metabolic function of the cells. This point, then, infection is when it's invaded. It's actually got not not just gotten in, but it's actually attached and it's growing in those colonies, and then begins to uh, cause uh, to uh, alter the things that those cells need to do, and that may cause the death of those cells. It may simply alter the proteins they make. It could be any number of things. At that point, we say there's. There are three different things that we uh, are considered to be manifestations of the disease. In other words, uh, ways that they show up. First of all are symptoms. And these can be easily confused. Symptoms are simply, what does the patient report? Okay, these are very subjective. It's what the patient tells you they feel. Those are symptoms. Okay. Um, and it's not unusual for different people to have the same disease and report different symptoms, particularly when pain is involved. Okay. Uh, that will vary considerably. Now, signs, on the other hand, are 
things that can be observed or measured. So the fact that you have 103 temperatures, that's a sign, it's not a symptom. I mean, the patient may say, I feel hot, that's a symptom. Okay? Or I'm getting chilled, I feel chilled, that's, that, that's another side effect of, of heat. That would be a symptom. But the actual temperature that they have, that would be a sign. It's something you can measure, uh, it's very, it's objective. Okay? So when you go to see a doctor, uh, they start measuring stuff. They're looking for signs. So hopefully, they have listened to you about the symptoms. Okay, some doctors or nurse practitioners are very good at that. Uh, some don't usually listen very well. Really good physicians will listen to the patient uh, before they make up their mind. Okay, and then we have the term syndrome. And these are the combination of symptoms and signs that a particular disease shows. Okay. Uh, for instance, uh, polio, you, initially there's, there's uh, fever, there's headaches. Uh, you know, these are all signs and symptoms. And then you start to get paralysis of, of the, some of the motor nerves, of the muscles. Okay, all signs and symptoms. That whole combination of signs and symptoms that go along with polio Sometimes people have, as we mentioned, people can be carriers and, and be asymptomatic. In which case, they have no signs or symptoms, but they still have So here's some examples of symptoms. These are the things a patient would tell you about. Over here, these were things that could be detected or measured. In allied health, you have to be able to distinguish those two things. Very important, I think, as long as you uh, allow the patient to tell you what their symptoms are before you decide. Now, etiology, and we'll talk about this when we do the uh, diseases of the various organ systems is the study of how a particular organism causes the disease. What exactly causes that disease to manifest itself? Uh, so that's referred to, the study of that's referred to as etiology. Uh, and uh, when we go through the different organ systems, uh, well, I won't make, you don't have to memorize that. There will be information on the etiology and we can see exactly what, how they cause the disease. Categories. Um, Some, some diseases are, you know, you didn't get a choice. You inherited it from your genes. Not much you can do about it. Congenital, usually defects present at birth, maybe not inherited, but they were caused by a number of other things. Genetics, whatever. Um, and here's some examples of each. Degenerative are the, the things that result from aging. So arthritis is a degenerative disease. Renal failure, a 
Okay, farsightedness as you get older. You can get to your mid-40s somewhere. If you haven't already, you start in the United States as it is in other parts of the world, although it does still occur here. It's not getting all the nutrients that are required, and you can end up having different disease based on lack of nutrition. You can have hormonal endocrine diseases, abnormal amounts of endocrines, either high or low. Um, mental, of course. Um, emotional, psychosomatic. Psychosomatic is a real disease that a person has it. They actually feel that. Immunological, things like allergies, autoimmune diseases, things that we'll talk about in the session. Uh, tumors, abnormal cell growth, they can be benign or they can be malignant. Uh, infectious, caused by an infectious agent. So you notice that infectious diseases is only one very small category. Iatrogenic, uh, this has been caused by a medical treatment. Something was done medically that resulted in a, in a problem. Uh, idiopathic means we have no clue. You don't see that often, but it does occur. Idiopathic simply means, well, they're sick, all right. That's about all we can tell you. And then uh, nosocomial, these are hospital-acquired infections. Pseudomonas is a common one. I have a be an adjunct here, had a hip replacement done, which he needed. Got infected, pseudomonas, they had to go back in, take it apart, irrigated with antibiotics, he's got a, a petaline pricking right into the pseudomonas. Eventually they took it out, infection reoccurred, he had to go back in again. Uh, that, was, that is a nosocomial. are more common in the United States. Alright, now when we get to that causation, we look at Cook's postulates. Um, probably one of the scariest things that can happen is for people to suddenly get sick and start dying and nobody knows why. What do you do? Okay, well, until the germ theory of disease was developed. That's the way all diseases work. People simply got sick and they died and nobody knew why. Tough way to live. Okay. Um, except it's not much better if you get sick and die and everybody knows that you died. Help you. People feel better about it. At least we know what it was. Okay. Alright, so uh, Robert Cook was a, uh, a microbiologist, physician at, in uh, Germany. And he, uh, and the germ theory of disease was becoming uh, established about that time. And he developed a, a set of what he called postulates at the time to determine exactly which organism caused which disease. Prior to that time, nobody ever knew what was causing the disease. Okay. And so the first step was every 
case of the disease, you must be able to isolate this whatever agent you think is causing it from every single individual that has the disease. Because if you have one that has the disease and you can't isolate that from it, then it clearly it's not the cause. Okay? So you have to be able to isolate it from all of them. At that point, what you need to be able to do is isolate them and grow them in pure culture. Not as easy as it sounds. Many organisms do struggle to grow in culture. Then you should be able to take some of this pure culture organism, inject it into, in this case, a mouse, and it causes the same disease that you saw up here. It has to be the same disease. And you can isolate the agent from the host in this case, and it's the same. Now, if you can do all four of those steps, Cook's postulates, one, two, three, four, then what you have demonstrated is that this particular microbe causes this specific disease. Today we have a pretty good handle on a lot of things. Back when he did this, he was the very first person to be able to do this. He did it with anthrax. Uh, that was the first disease he worked with. And once he did this and established his four postulates, uh, many other people took up and said, hey, that works. And he started to figure out That's still an issue today when a new disease, a new disease is being developed. And we don't know what it is. Okay, the first thing they have to do is figure out what it is, what exactly is causing it. You can't treat it until you know what it is. Now, there are some exceptions. Okay, obviously, if you can't culture them in the lab, you can't figure this out, and that is still a problem for some organisms. Always a possibility that in some cases the disease might be caused by more than one organism at the same time, although that's not something you hear much about. But if any of either of those conditions occur, then Cook's postulates are not going to help you. They're not going to be sufficient. So Cook's postulates, extremely important in the history of uh, microbiology, because this is when we began to figure out what disease caused by what specific organism. And at that point, you can then begin to, to attack the organism with some kind of treatment. Right. Some exceptions. Okay, what about a couple of new terms here? Pathogenicity and virulence. Many of the organisms that you house, your residents, do not cause Say they just they are not pathogenic, they have no pathogenicity, they do not cause disease. Okay? As a rule, that you know that, that everybody's happy with. Okay? Um, the degree of pathogenicity is referred to as virulence. Some strains of the same organism are more virulent than others. Okay? In other words, they cause more severe disease than others do. Uh, this may have to do with adhesion factors. They may secrete enzymes outside of them. They may produce toxins. Uh, or some of them actually produce antiphagocytic factors to prevent white blood cells from engulfing them. Okay. Any of those things can make what is already a pathogen more virulent than it was. And some of these are actually transferred on plasmids, just like Now, 
just as a, a kind of a few of them, um, lactobacilli are very not particularly virulent. Then you get the candida, Clostridium difficile, Pseudomonas, and then Pseudomonas off the plague, Yersinia pestis, and Francisella tuberensis, which is rather fever, much more virulent. The more virulent they are, the more likely it is to cause. Fever, uh, it's it's acquired from animals. Uh, it's called rabbit fever because in, initially it was most people hunted rabbits and then humans had a little bit of nick on their hands and got infected. Uh, you get a number. We'll talk about that when we get to all the diseases, what the symptoms of it are, uh, and it is. Uh, I, I think the fatality rate. Not very common. It was once thought to be a potential uh, use for biological uh, uh, Just depends on what you're trying to accomplish. If you're just trying to terrorize and keep numbers out, you don't need to kill everybody. You just need to make people sick. That's all you need to kill. Uh, use of the in some uses, uh, chemicals. Virulence has to do with how serious the disease is. It's not necessarily making it uh, more easily transmissible. We're going to talk about transmission. Okay, so extracellular enzymes, as I mentioned. Um, there are uh, some that secrete enzymes, for instance, that dissolve the stuff that holds your cells together in your skin. Okay? Um, it's usually. Um, Streptococcus does this, or Staphylococcus. Uh, there's a particular chemical that's like a glue that helps hold cells together, and this enzyme dissolves that, so your cell starts to come apart, and layers of tissue will simply slump off of the skin. Uh, we'll talk about those when we do some of those diseases. But you, uh, they uh, help obviously maintain the infection. They help them in, avoid the body defenses, because again, if you're going to be a successful pathogen. Once you get established and you start to grow and become infection, infection, you have to be able to avoid the body defenses, or you're not going to be around very long. And that's another important thing for the disease to do. Um, you can take the same species that secretes the enzyme, and if you can find a mutant that doesn't make the enzyme, usually it is. So here's uh, an example. Hyaluronidase and collagenase are the two they're talking about here. Here's your collagen layer underneath the cells. Remember that from when we did the skin and anatomy? Lots of collagen down here. Uh, the hyaluronidase breaks the cells apart because they now adhere to each other. Collagenase breaks down the uh, collagen and then they escape. The cells then escape into the lower Coagulase and kinase are another pair. Uh, bacteria produce coagulase. So what this does for them 
is it causes blood to clot, and they're caught up in the clot, which is great because now the, the immune system can't get out because they're all tangled up in the clot. Okay? And then later they will produce something called a kinase, which dissolves the clot and releases the organ. Interesting. Okay. Well, fortunately for everybody. It's called the skin syndrome. Uh, and it's a, it's a, it's a and it basically does this stuff over here and causes the epidermal layer of the skin to slough off. So like bare, normal hair, bright red, very painful. And it looks like the skin's been scalded. That's why they're They also produce toxins. Um, there are two kinds of toxins. The exotoxins, which are secreted outside the cell, actually made in the cell, secreted outside. And then there are endotoxins, which are actually part of the cell, but when the cell dies, they get released, okay? Uh, endotoxins generally are uh, the more serious of the two. Uh, any gram-negative cell has the LPS layer, okay, when they, are damaged and they die, that LPS is released and the body reacts to that. That's considered an endotoxin. It's part of the cell. Okay? Uh, meningitis, the most common type, produces it. Uh, most of the damage is done when it becomes a septic infection, it gets into the bloodstream. The cells are easily killed. Penicillin kills them like right now. As they die, they release the toxin that they produce, which causes damage to blood vessels. And, and so it's a matter of, okay, we got it, we killed them, but now can we keep the patient alive long enough for them to recover? That's all you can do at that point. You can, uh, I guess you can do some, you, you can do a transfusion because there are sometimes some antitoxins you can give. You know, and that you just have to wait it out. And you, you treat the symptoms that they have in time. If you catch it early, they'll survive. In this case, they travel in the bloodstream. And what they do is that the toxin causes the walls of the capillaries to become sticky and the white blood cells roll along there and then they get stuck and then the, the capillary ruptures and then you form a clot, okay? Okay, well that's all supposed to happen. But after a while, you run out of stuff to form clots with. And you get, uh, you get what are called petechiae, okay? Little purplish spots all 
start to appear on the body. And that's a result of that. So it's not just on the surface of your body, it's happening all everywhere in terms of well. It's happening in the liver and the kidneys and the heart and cavities and it doesn't take long. Now that's the danger of that. Easily treated, but the, now the treatment is something that causes more harm at that point. You don't have a choice, you gotta treat it. So when you have toxins in the blood, we call that toxemia. means that they've secreted out of the cell, um, which is proteins, uh, very highly toxic, typically not very stable molecules, uh, stimulates an antibody production, botulism happens, that's cholera, all of those things happen. And over here we have the gram negatives, um, which produce endotoxins as part of the outer cell wall, that LPS layer. Toxicity is not very high, but it, you get a lot of it. Uh, and uh, these are some of the symptoms here, or the effects. Uh, this is a fever. It does not stimulate the production of antibodies, which is rare. Uh, at this point, there's no way to treat them with the top surface, which is basically the Down here is some of the meningococcal. Toxic shock syndrome, I've heard about that. Okay. a little bit more about the varying factors, um, and then the stages of an infectious disease. And then the final thing that they have to do is to be a successful pathogen, they've got to get out of the host and get to another host. Otherwise, they haven't been very successful. So we'll go through all of that. Which lecture is that test? Pardon? Which lecture is that test? 5A, 5B, and 6. 